Hey there, and welcome to another core content episode. Today, we're going to cover everything that you've got to know about COPD. We wanted to get a little bit more basic today to cover the gold guideline updates. The reason being, we have an interview coming up with Dr. Antonio Ansueto. He's a pulmonary critical care physician from UT Health and one of the contributors to the gold guidelines. If you're primarily an ICU provider, I know what you're probably thinking. COPD is easy. Bronchodilators, steroids, maybe some antibiotics, probably some BiPAP. Right, and even I've fallen prey to that myopic view of the disease a time or two. But as I've been reading more and learning about COPD from my attendings, it's actually a legitimately serious disease. And if you want to be good at treating COPD, the devil's in the detail. Gotta know it. COPD is the third leading cause of death in the United States. Almost 16 billion Americans are diagnosed with COPD, but this is likely significantly underestimated. Many experts think that the real rate of diagnosis is probably double this. The disease is also quite costly, 50 billion annually. 8 million physician office visits, 1.5 million emergency department visits, and hospitalizations for COPD exacerbations account for $14 billion of the cost annually. About one-fifth of hospitalized patients with an acute COPD exacerbation will be readmitted within 30 days. Beyond the hospital, most patients with COPD report some level of limitation in performing their activities of daily living, all due to breathlessness. Improving quality of care for patients with COPD means fewer hospitalizations and readmissions, lower health care costs, and patients feeling better and potentially living longer, although that's a bit trickier to back up with data. The Global Initiative for Chronic Obstructive Lung Disease, or GOLD, defines COPD as a common, preventable, and treatable disease that's characterized by persistent respiratory symptoms and airflow limitation that are due to airway and alveolar abnormalities. Now, the thing that kicks all of this off is exposure to some sort of noxious particle or gas. Go ahead, Jer. Go ahead what? We all know you're dying to talk pathophys. Am I really that predictable? Definitely. All right. Well, let's give the people what they want. Recurrent exposure to environmental factors that predispose patients to COPD, and there are lots. I was really surprised to learn how many there were. Tobacco smoke, cooking fuel used indoors, often seen in low-income countries, organic dust, chemical fumes, asthma, severe childhood respiratory infections. And there are also genetic and socioeconomic factors. Older individuals, females, low socioeconomic status, they're all major risk factors for developing COPD. Environmental and genetic risk factors all lead to chronic inflammation, increased mucus production, and often some element of bronchospasm. Now, over time, the architect of the lungs start to change, primarily in two ways. The first is inflammation and narrowing of small airways. Now, this is the key feature in chronic bronchitis. And then also destruction of lung parenchyma. This is the key feature in emphysema. There's a significant amount of extrapulmonary inflammation that occurs in COPD as well. Right, and it's still somewhat of a mystery, but systemic inflammation is thought to be the reason that COPD coexists with so many other conditions like weight loss, skeletal muscle atrophy, cardiovascular disease, osteoporosis, and even cancer. Back to the architectural changes. Jer, I think you're hinting at the fact that there are several COPD phenotypes. Yeah, I almost forgot. Emphysema, sometimes what we call pink puffers, chronic bronchitis, blue bloaters, 
and chronic obstructive asthma. And this is a major source of frustration for students. We always like to label patients and put them in a disease box, right? You have emphysema, you have chronic bronchitis, but the reality is that these phenotypes can coexist, often with varying ratios from patient to patient. We'll link some information in the show notes, but the unifying feature of all of these phenotypes, what makes them all COPD, is persistent airflow limitation. This is the obstruction. A diagnosis of COPD should be considered in all patients with risk factors, primarily smoking, who report shortness of breath at rest or with exertion, chronic cough, with or without sputum, and a history of wheezing. Physical exam findings are also supportive, right? You may find a wheeze, accessory muscle use, and pursed lip breathing. The patient may have peripheral cyanosis or a decreased number of word dyspnea, like one word dyspnea, two word dyspnea, meaning how many words can they speak without being short of breath or stopping to catch their breath. The key here is that findings from your history and physical are merely supportive. You cannot make the diagnosis of COPD based on smoking history plus wheeze alone. And we see this all the time. Someone comes in with a 40-pack year history, wheezing, and hypercapnia, and almost invariably they get pegged with a diagnosis of COPD and thrown on BiPAP. Well, Jer, they probably do have COPD. Maybe. Probably. Definitely maybe. You're impossible. But really, the assumption that all smokers with a wheeze have COPD is problematic. This leads to us treating people for assumed COPD, but what if they have asthma? or something else entirely. The treatment is different. What about readmissions for these patients? Especially if we're mislabeling them and mistreating them, we're getting pegged with a COPD readmission that's really not. And then there are also implications in long-term follow-up. If a patient's diagnosed with COPD without PFTs, then we have no way of monitoring the efficacy of our treatment by serial spirometry. I really think you hit the nail on the head there, Jeremy. It's really problematic to label patients with COPD just with some wheeze in the ER for the rest of their life for all the reasons you've already mentioned. The gold standard and really the only way to diagnose COPD is by performing a pulmonary function test. Have you ever done one? Like, did my own PFT? Yeah. I have, actually. I have the lung capacity of a baby whale. I have no words. I don't think I can make whale noises. So the idea of a PFT is that the patient blows out as hard and as fast as they can into a spirometer. Now, if there's a detected airflow limitation, the patient is offered a bronchodilator, and the diagnosis of COPD is confirmed if their airflow limitation persists or only improves a little bit with a bronchodilator challenge. When we say airflow limitation, what we really mean is the post-bronchodilator FEV1 to FVC ratio is less than 70%. Remember, the FEV1 to FVC ratio is really asking what percentage of your vital capacity, so the big breath you just took, can you blow out in the first second of a forced expiration. Exactly, and somebody with obstruction is going to have a much harder time exhaling. This is going to manifest as a drop in your FUV1 to FVC ratio, specifically less than 70%. Is there anything else we use to diagnose COPD? To diagnose COPD? Uh, Remember, the only test that we can use to diagnose COPD is a PFT. But much like the history and physical, there are other findings that are supportive. CT, chest x-ray, you may see hyperinflation of the lungs, flattened diaphragms, hanging heart, widened rib spaces, barrel chest, emphysematous changes such as airspace enlargement, septal destruction, bullet, which actually can get really big. On ABG, you may obviously see evidence of chronic hypercapnia or hypoxemia, and you can see acute changes if it's an acute exacerbation. 
often on ABG, the hypercapnia that we see is far out of proportion to the change in pH. So for labs, you may see metabolic alkalosis, which is compensatory to the chronic hypercapnia, and polycythemia, which is compensatory for the chronic hypoxemia. Once you've established the presence of persistent airflow limitation, which again is an FEV1 to FEC ratio less than 70% after that bronchodilator challenge. I was getting there. Space repetition. Anyway, once you've established a diagnosis of COPD, you need to further characterize the disease in your patient. And this is where the gold guidelines come in. They were most recently updated in 2017, and so that is what we're going to be covering here in this episode. Gold recommends that for all patients with a diagnosis of COPD, we should step one, assess severity, step two, assess the symptoms, and then finally, step three, obtain an exacerbation history. How are we assessing severity of COPD? This is entirely based off the FEV1. Mild is greater than 80%, moderate is 50 to 80%, severe is 30 to 50%, and very severe is less than 30 And these correlate with gold grades 1 through 4, respectively. So an FEV1 of 81%, which hits that greater than or equal to 80%, is going to be gold grade 1. An FEV1 of 55% is gold grade 2. An FEV1 of 35% is gold grade 3, and so on and so forth. If those numbers got jumbled in your head, we'll throw that table into the show notes. So we've assessed severity. Next, we need to assess symptoms. How are we doing that? Gold recommends using either the Modified British Medical Research Council Questionnaire, MMRC, which are primarily questions about dyspnea, or the COPD assessment test, CAT. That's a much easier one to say. Severe symptoms are going to be an MMRC of 2 or greater or a CAT of 10 or greater. Now, both of these are surveys that you can give to your patient, but I'm going to be honest. When I'm on the fly seeing patients with COPD in the emergency department, I don't have these with me. Right. These are better for the office setting. I do find that the MMRC is pretty easy to use on the fly. It's funny that the MMRC is difficult to say, but easy to use. There you go. So the MMRC, remember that severe symptoms means that your patient has an MMRC of two or greater, whereas less severe symptoms is going to be an MMRC of zero to one. So We've assessed the severity of airflow limitation first by the FEV1. Then we've assessed the severity of symptoms by either using the CAT or the MMRC. And now we need to get an exacerbation history. This one's pretty easy. Ask the question how many exacerbations they've had in the past year and how many have led to hospital admission. So what do we do with all this information now? We use the severity to grade them. And remember, that's gold grades one through four. Yes, and then we use the symptom severity and the exacerbation history to stage them. That's confusing. Yes, but not really. I'm going to put the two-by-two table in the show notes, but it really isn't that bad. So according to the new GOLD 2017 guidelines, we have GOLD stages A, B, C, and D. GOLD stage A means that the patient has mild symptoms and has had one or less exacerbations in the past year, and none of them have led to a hospital admission. On the more severe side, gold stage D means the patient has both severe symptoms and has had either two or more exacerbations or at least one exacerbation leading to hospital admission. So for us on the inpatient side, this makes things actually pretty easy. Yep, any patient admitted for COPD exacerbation is going to be either gold C or D. So what differentiates gold stage C and D? Symptoms. C has mild symptoms. 
D has severe symptoms. If the patient gets short of breath getting dressed or walking down the block, or if they're unable to keep up with their peers, then they're gold stage D. Bingo. Love it. So we've diagnosed the disease, we've done all the things, we've graded them and staged them. Now what? Now we treat them. Gold recommends treating patients based on that ABCD grading scheme. So figuring out whether they are grade A, B, C, or D is important to help tailor your therapy for the patient. Let's go ahead and break these down by grade. So grade A get some form of bronchodilation. Probably your best bet is to just go ahead and start some short-acting rescue inhaler, albuterol, or equivalent. But you could do anything based on the guidelines. What about grade B? Grade B steps it up a little, formally recommending a long-acting bronchodilator. They suggest either a long-acting beta agonist, LABA, or a long-acting muscarinic antagonist, LAMA. What about if the LABA or LAMA doesn't work? If symptoms persist on LABA or LAMA monotherapy, use both. Both LAMA and LABA. Oh, yeah. All right. What about patients who have gold grade C? This one gets a little more complicated. Gold recommends starting with the LAMA. If that doesn't work, you can move to a combined LAMA plus LABA. They also give you the option of a LABA plus inhaled corticosteroid. Start with LAMA with the option of moving to either LAMA plus LABA or LABA plus inhaled corticosteroid. Couldn't have said it better myself. I know. Let's wrap up with gold grade D. What are our treatment options for these patients? Buckle up, because this one is even more complicated. Oh, boy. There really isn't one-size-fits-all answer for these patients, but I'll try to summarize it. Just like grade C, you have the option of LAMA monotherapy, LAMA plus LABA, or LABA ICS. For severe refractory symptoms, you can move to triple therapy. Triple therapy being LABA, LAMA, and ICS? Exactly. All three. From here, you're given the option of considering long-term macrolide therapy or reflumolast in selected patients. So let's get a little bit of spaced repetition for our listeners out there. Grade A, any bronchodilator. Pick your poison. Grade B, llama or lava or both. Grade C, llama or llama plus lava or lava ICS. Grade D, just like grade C, you can do llama, lava, llama or lava ICS or triple therapy with the option of adding reflumolast or chronic macrolide therapy in select patients. Nicely done. Critical Care, this is Jeremy. Hey, Jeremy, this is John down here in the ER. Hey, what's up, John? What can I do for you? So I've got a COPD down here. Came in puffing like a blowfish. Gas 7.1, 110, 55. I stuck him on bypass. He's ready for you. I'll be down in a bit. We've all gotten the call for that COPD exacerbation. So what exactly is an exacerbation? Great question. An exacerbation is really just an acute worsening of respiratory symptoms, and it could be anything. Shortness of breath, cough, bronchospasm, or sputum production, and they're usually precipitated by something. Maybe not taking your inhalers or respiratory infection like a common cold. Exacerbations are further classified by mild, moderate, and severe. These ratings are somewhat subjective, but anyone who requires hospitalization or visit to the ER categorically has a severe exacerbation. I do think it's worth mentioning that more than 80% of COPD exacerbations are managed on an outpatient basis. Really? 80%? Yeah, I thought that was surprising too. The patients we admit to the hospital only represent 20% of all exacerbations out there. Wow. 
For those hospitalized for severe exacerbations, I do feel like we could further subclassify them. Yeah, I agree. We've all seen the stable COPD exacerbation who needs a few days of a bronchodilator and steroid therapy. And we've also seen the unstable COPD exacerbation, the one with severe hypercapnic respiratory failure and obtundation. To solve this problem, Gold recommends the following subcategorization. No respiratory failure acute respiratory failure, as in tachypnea, hypercapnia, or hypoxemia, and then finally, life-threatening acute respiratory failure, presence of acidosis, hypoxemia not improved with supplemental O2, or altered mental status. I like that classification a little bit better. Me too. So how are we treating acute exacerbations? So you start by increasing the dose and frequency of their short-acting bronchodilator. And often, anecdotally, we are prescribing a combined short-acting beta agonist and a short-acting muscarinic antagonist. Sabasama. What's the gold recommendation for steroid therapy in an acute exacerbation of COPD? They recommend considering oral corticosteroids. Not IV? Nope. Oral's first line. So, hey, I'm not going to let you just make that statement about steroids and us not talk about it. So I knew you were going to do that. Yeah, that steroids in literally every disease state is super controversial. I thought at least COPD, it was safe. No, nowhere is safe. <laughs> so I think in 2014, the reduced trial came out that showed using PO prednisone for five days was equivalent to doing longer steroid tapers. Our group really has adopted that since that time and gone to five-day taper and stop. And in that trial, they specifically used 40 milligrams of prednisone. And they don't taper at all. They just stop it. Yeah, and the gold guidelines have actually been updated to make sure that you don't continue your systemic steroids for any more than five to seven days. So that's the hard deadline. When I first started in our practice before that trial came out, everyone had their own version of a steroid taper, and a lot of people were doing long steroid tapers, 10 to 14 days. But it's just doesn't seem to be borne out in the data that that's needed. Now, one of the things that the guidelines don't comment on is whether or not we should be doing PO all the time or if there's ever any indication for IV. So I I think this is another area where our pulmonary team's a bit more uh, with the new guidelines in comparison to our ICU team. We're still throwing all of our patients on IV steroids in the ICU, whereas I see the pulmonary team doing a good job of maybe a day or so of IV steroids before weaning them to PO prednisone. Yeah, there was a trial in 2017 by DeJong, and it was published in CHEST, and it basically found that therapy with oral prednisone, and that this is 60 milligrams on the equivalent IV regimen as well, when compared to IV, oral corticosteroids were non-inferior and non-inferior with regard to treatment failure, which they defined as death, ICU admission, readmission to ICU because of COPD, or intensification of pharmacologic therapy for the patient's COPD within a 90-day period. So maybe we should be doing oral whenever feasible? Yeah, I think that's my takeaway from all this. If you if your patient's super sick, you're you know certainly knock yourself out, throw them on IV steroids, but just don't keep them on it forever. Go ahead and switch them over to PO prednisone when they're starting to look a little better. Maybe that's on day two. I don't know the answer of when that is, but you should be thinking about it every day. What about antibiotics? Gold recommends oral antibiotic therapy when there are signs of a bacterial infection. So increasing sputum production, 
leukocytosis, fever, I mean, all the common things. One of our physicians, Dr. Hartley, recently did a blog post on this. The common tendency was to administer macrolide monotherapy for these patients with COPD exacerbation plus acute bronchitis. Right, but especially here in the southeast, macrolide resistance is increasing. For most patients, doxy is probably a better choice. Why not Leviquin? Fluoroquinolones are convenient, but they also increase the risk of selecting drug-resistant organisms, things like C. diff, and the oft-written-about but not-always-seen tendon rupture. So for patients with COPD exacerbation plus signs of a bacterial infection, macrolide monotherapy is likely a poor choice, at least in the southeast. Doxy is a better choice for most patients. Leviquin is another option, but not first line. Yeah, and I'll put this blog post in the show notes with all the full recommendations so that you can review what Dr. Hartley had to say. Let's wrap up with supplemental oxygen and ventilator support. True or false? We should put all patients with COPD on a non-rebreather to target an oxygen saturation of 100%. (laughs) That is categorically false. It sure is. How come? You'll worsen their hypercapnia. Bingo. Supernormal O2 is commonly thought to worsen hypercapnia through a decrease in respiratory drive. But the real reason is VQ mismatch and the Haldane effect. I'm I'm just going to stop you there. No. Really, really. Every time you get biochemical, we lose listeners. Every time. I'm putting it in the show notes. That's fine. No one's going to read it. Somebody will read it. Maybe one person, like like your mom. <laughs> so take home. For patients with COPD, especially if they have chronic hypoxemia, it's probably better to target an O2 sat of 88 to 92% to avoid worsening their hypercapnia. For patients with hypercapnia, then, what options do we have? We have non-invasive ventilation. BiPAP and invasive ventilation, the ventilator. I love BiPAP for patients with COPD. It just makes so much sense. It's data-driven. For patients with COPD exacerbation plus acute respiratory failure, BiPAP will improve their gas exchange, reduce their work of breathing, lowers their rate of intubation, and decreases duration of hospitalization. And get this, it improves survival. Really, and this is a grade A recommendation in the 2017 Gold Guidelines. We should maintain a very low threshold for initiating BiPAP support in patients with a COPD exacerbation who have a PCO2 greater than 45 or a pH less than 7.35, severe dyspnea, increased work of breathing, or persistent hypoxemia. Wow, I feel like I wait until things look way worse than that to start BiPAP. Right, me too, but this is evidence-based. Start non-invasive early and often. Indications for invasive ventilation are exactly what you would think. Inability to tolerate non-invasive, altered mental status, persistent or worsening hypoxia, persistent or worsening hypercapnia, and everyone's favorite indication expected clinical course. My favorite indication for sure. So to summarize, Saba or Sama, and even better if it's combined, always. Laba, never. ICS and oral corticosteroids, sometimes. Antibiotics if bacterial infection is suspected. Macrolide monotherapy, probably not a good choice in our region. Consider doxy instead. Non-invasive often and early. Invasive ventilation for persistent or worsening hypoxemia, hypercapnia, altered mental status, non-invasive failure, or expected clinical course. This last section is all about marginal gains in COPD. Marginal? Gains? Yeah. Dave Brailsford, he's a British cyclist coach for the Tour de France. The idea is that if you improve everything that you do by 1%, these small gains will add up to make a remarkable improvement. Okay. Hear me out. Hear me out. We always want to talk about the sexy topics, right? Hypercapnic respiratory failure, BiPAP, airway management, and COPD. But the devil is really in the details. 
It's these little things that ultimately add up to improve mortality and quality of life. For starters, smoking cessation. Yeah, but let's talk about BiPAP. <laughs> Come on, we got to talk about the important stuff. Okay, okay. Quitting smoking has the greatest capacity to influence the natural history of COPD. Among patients with COPD compared to active smokers, those who quit will have better lung function, better quality of life, and lower mortality. Even three minutes of smoking cessation counseling can have a significant effect on smoking cessation rates. There's lots of literature out there on smoking cessation therapy, both pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic. We'll link it in the show notes. And the next marginal gain is inhaler technique. Even if you're a great clinician who has memorized every grade, every stage, and concocted the perfect regimen for your patient, if they don't know how to use their inhalers, it's as if you've never treated them at all. You want to make sure that there is someone providing inhaler training for your patients and verifying in person that they know how to use them. In that same vein, ask your patients about side effects and if there are any barriers to them using their inhalers or medications. They may not otherwise be forthright about medication adherence. Next up, flu vaccine. Everyone should be getting their flu shot. That's really like pulling teeth to convince people to get one. I know, but those with COPD should definitely get their flu shot. It reduces serious illnesses in both flu and pneumonia, and even death among patients with COPD. What about the pneumococcal vaccine? The 23-valent pneumococcal polysaccharide vaccine, the PPSV23, reduces the incidence of CAP among patients with COPD who are less than 65 years old, have a FEV1 less than 40% predicted, or comorbidities such as cardiac disease. And in the general population, remember, for those greater than or equal to 65, we offer both that 13-valent conjugated pneumococcal vaccine in addition to that 23-valent pneumococcal polysaccharide vaccine. So an FEV1 of less than 40% or other comorbidities in addition to your COPD allow you to get the 23-valent vaccine even though you're less than 65. So next up, pulmonary rehab. We'll put some links in the show notes, but pulmonary rehab is awesome. The short of it, pulmonary rehabilitation programs have been shown to reduce shortness of breath, improve overall health status, and exercise tolerance. Let's talk long-term oxygen therapy. The long-term oxygen therapy trial generated a lot of buzz when it was published in New England Journal back in October of 2017. What did the trial show? In patients with stable COPD with resting or exercise-induced moderate desaturation, long-term supplemental oxygen didn't do anything. And by didn't doing anything, what we mean is no impact on mortality, no impact on time to first hospitalization, and no sustained benefit of any kind even on the secondary endpoints. Now, this sort of flew in the face of everything we thought we've ever known about oxygen, and particularly a well-known systematic review published in 2005, which did demonstrate a mortality benefit in long-term oxygen therapy. But this was with patients who had severe resting hypoxemia, which was at that time defined by an arterial PaO2 of less than 55 millimeters of mercury. The review did comment that there was no impact on mortality for those who had mild to moderate hypoxemia or those who only desaturated at night. So where does this leave us? The 2017 gold guidelines formally recommend considering long-term oxygen therapy for those who have severe resting hypoxemia. Let's finish up our marginal gains discussion with palliative care. Is there a role for early palliative care in patients with COPD? I think that's a leading question, but definitely. And when we say palliative care, this isn't just end-of-life stuff. COPD is an extremely symptomatic disease. Fatigue, dyspnea, depression, anxiety, insomnia, and therefore symptom-based palliative treatments are totally warranted. 
Beyond severe symptoms, we also have to recognize that COPD is one of the leading causes of death in the U.S. Which means that we have to have those difficult conversations with our COPD patients. Conversations about life support, advanced directives, and establishing a power of attorney. We often see patients in the ICU with grade 4, stage D COPD, who never even thought about whether or not they want to be on the ventilator. And unfortunately, this is a tough time to discuss these things, especially when critical illness hits suddenly. We rely heavily on our palliative care colleagues who do a great job navigating the difficult waters of -of end-of-life care. But I would love to see these advanced care planning conversations happening earlier and earlier. And our group is doing a good job of trying to push these conversations forward with the Pulsed. Stay tuned for our advanced directive podcast that's coming out talking about some of the advancements that we've made in this realm. It's no doubt that early palliative care helps to reduce symptoms, improve quality of life, and better tailor our care to each of our patients. That sounds like a great place to stop. Agree. Homecasters, thank you so much for tuning in to another core content episode. As always, check out the show notes for more material. And if you haven't already, go ahead and leave a review for us on iTunes or your podcast app. Share the episode with your friends, and we'd love to hear what you think. Until next time, keep breathing, keep streaming, and keep reading.